hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Welcome to today's edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. Today, we're wrapping up the second part of our annual outlook. Today is the day when I'm going to be talking about stocks, the stocks we want to own for the coming year. Last week, I covered the big picture. And in case you missed it, I basically said that I think we've put in a bottom on the market over the holidays. Yes, the economy is slowing. Real U.S. GDP rose at a blistering 3.8% average annualized pace for Q1 or Q2 and Q3 in 2018. And there's just no way that sort of growth rate could have been sustained. Given the route in the market, it's actually surprising that the economy hasn't weakened more than it has. Right now, the New York Fed GDP forecast points to growth of 2.5% in Q4 of 2018 and 2.1% for the first quarter of 2019. Unemployment is low. The consumer looks to be in good shape. The Fed looks to be on hold for a while. The bottom line is we're still growing, not as fast as we were, but we're still growing. And I don't see much of a chance for a recession this year. Even though the markets have bounced back here the last couple of weeks, I still think that there's some bargains out there for long-term investors. So let's start with the financials. They've long been a staple in value investors' portfolios because they've historically had decent growth rates, traded at lower P.E. ratios, and paid higher dividends than the market average. If you believe in the long-term economic growth and success in America, then you'll probably want to own a few in your portfolio. You always have to do your own research to see if an investment is right for you. You just don't buy something and hope it works out. The first one I start off with, or I always start off with, is Berkshire Hathaway. We buy the B shares. It's symbol BRKB. And it's been that way for more than 20 years, so there's no need to change it now. As many of you know, this is Warren Buffett's company, and it started back in 1965. It's been one of my largest holdings since I started managing money more than two decades ago. And the reason is pretty simple. It's his track record. His track record puts him at the top of the list of most successful investors ever. According to the last annual report, which I think their annual report is a must read for anyone who's investing, whether you own the stock or not. According to the annual report, the growth in Berkshire's book value has simply been astounding. Since the beginning, Berkshire has compounded its book value at a rate of 19.1% per year versus the S&P return of 9.9%. Berkshire's compounded at more than 9% per year over the last 50 years. Actually, it's more than 50 years. Compounded out from 1965, Berkshire's up over 1 million percent versus the S&P being up 15,000%. Now, that's a big difference, a 
big difference between a million and 15,000. Realistically, I don't think Berkshire will continue to grow like that in the future, but it's still a very worthy core holding in someone's portfolio. I'm not going to go over the parts of the business today because I have too much ground to cover and I've done it at length before. So let's jump right to the valuation side of it. With every investment, there's a time to buy it and a time you may want to take a pass on it. With Berkshire, I look at book value, not earnings, not PE, but book value. Even book value understates the value of the company in in this case, but I think it's still a very good metric that you can use. According to Value Line, they estimate Berkshire's book value to be around $153 for this year. And the stock is trading just about $204 as I speak, or about 1.3 times book value. This is about where Warren Buffett said he would be buying back his own shares. As a matter of fact, they bought back some in the last quarter at around $207. Granted, with the drop in the market during the last quarter, book value probably declined some, but it should bounce back here as the market turns up. I own it and I'd be a buyer under 205. When I say financials, most people think of the banks. So let's go there next. I think the banks have a good year in front of them. The 800-pound gorilla in the room is the threat of the yield curve staying flat or inverting. That's not great for the banks. Banking is basically a business that borrows money short-term by selling things like CDs and taking in deposits, and it lends that money out long-term through things like mortgages and consumer loans. The difference between the funding cost and the money they make lending it back out longer term is called the net interest margin. We have a pretty, pretty darn flat yield curve here, but I'm looking past that. I think that risk is more than offset by some other factors. And I don't think we enter a recession this coming year. First is loan growth, commercial and industrial or C&I loans, which is the biggest lending category for the banks. C&I has been rising by about 10.5%, and that's according to BCA research. Second, which is the biggest, uh, second biggest lending category for the banks is mortgages. If we have a reprieve from the Fed who don't raise rates over the next several months, I think home buyers will come back to the market. I know we just had a terrible homes number in the last day or two, but I think the home buyers will come back with the recent easing in monetary conditions, you actually have seen some mortgage applications come back and home prices continue to rise. And we have a confident consumer, low unemployment, which bodes well for consumer lending. My favorite here out of all the banks is USB. That's US Bancorp, not UBS the broker. Don't get those two confused. We're talking about USB, US Bank Corps. And it's what I like to call the best bank in America. They're the fifth largest bank based on deposits, assets, and market cap. I think that they're the best because of their business model. They generate as much revenue from their fee-based business, like 
merchant processing, issuing credit cards and investment manage, management, they earn as much revenue from those as they do from lending. The great thing about this is you don't need as much capital. So for every dollar in deposits, USB generates a higher level of profitability with much better capital efficiency compared to your typical bank. They just reported a pretty decent quarter, which wasn't surprising because they're pretty darn consistent. This is a conservative, boring bank which is exactly what I want. No surprises. That's why I prefer them over something like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, which are fine, but every once in a while, you're going to have something blow up there. Goldman Sachs is having their issues now, and you probably remember a few years ago, JP Morgan had the whale blow up. At some point, Goldman Sachs will get cheap enough, but If I want to add some risk in banking, I would look at Wells Fargo, symbol WFC. But first, let me finish up on USB. This is a core type holding. I think it's a buy under $50 and you're getting darn near a 3% dividend. Okay, so let's talk about Wells Fargo, WFC. Under $50, well, looks interesting to me. And you're getting darn near a three and a half percent dividend. I'm not going to drill down on them today, but I do think that they look inexpensive here. Let's talk about healthcare. In a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to have on Kevin Peters. He's going to come on and talk about the state of long-term care now. Kevin is an insurance guru. He really knows his stuff. So you're going to make sure you want to catch that show. But As part of my core portfolio, I always like having a drug company. And when I talk about core holdings, I'm talking about companies that you buy with the intent of owning forever. You're not trading them. You're buying them and you're going to let them compound over long periods of time. Since these are usually really, really good companies, they don't usually trade at bargain basement prices. In the healthcare space, my core holding for years has been Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. Right now, it's trading under $130, paying two and three quarter percent dividend. They aren't just a pharmaceutical company. They're a company that has a diverse collection of healthcare-related businesses, which means they have diverse revenue streams. They're the world's largest healthcare company with revenues coming in north of $80 billion, I think it is now. Today, the pharmaceutical division contributes just over 50% of total revenue. And they have some several industry-leading drugs like Remicade and the, psori- the psoriasis drug Stelera. They recently launched several new blockbuster drugs, which is great because of the company's size. They need to increase the number of drugs in late-stage development to support their long-term growth. I think that's the case with all drug companies. Investors value you on your pipeline. The medical device group, well, they bring in 30% of revenues. They have a dominant position in a lot of areas like orthopedics. So if you need a new hip or a new knee, it may be one of theirs. And then finally, you have the consumer products division 
rounds it out with about 15% of revenue. You know their brands, Band-Aids, Listerine, Neutrogena, Tylenol. We know about the lawsuits over the talcum powder, but to me, that seems like it's priced in at this point. So, So let's talk about valuations. It's trading at just about $129, and management just said they forecast that they would earn between $850 and $865 this year. So they're trading at about 14 or 15 times this year's earnings. They're trading inexpensively, not cheap, but I think it's reasonable. They pay a nice, well-covered dividend that they've increased for 54 consecutive years. So that's clearly important to them. I think it's a buy here under 130. That's Johnson & Johnson symbol J&J. Let's step away and take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch more that you might want to own for the coming year. worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join us today. We are talking about stocks for the coming year. We had just finished up on Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. That's our core holding um, as far as the drug stocks are concerned. Another high quality drug company is Merck, symbol MRK. But Mark's been on this terrific run here over the last six months to the point where it's a little pricey for me. And that's mainly because I'm just cheap. They'd have to come back quite a bit here to get me interested in them again and interested in buying them. But if I owned it, I'd hold on to it. I think it's a great company. We did buy another biotech company back in early summer and we bought it to complement our big pharma. Right. So we have this big core type. We wanted to add a little risk on the side. And we did that by buying Regeneron, symbol R-E-G-N. And clients have asked me about this one because on the surface, it looked expensive at the time that we bought it. And it looks even more expensive now. I think this is one of the better ones in the space. Sanofi, the French drug maker, well, they own more than 20% of the company. And the short story with Regeneron is, is that they generate a ton of free cash flow. And I love cash. And they have little in the way of debt. And on top of all that, they have a great pipeline of drugs. When I look at them, they're trading at 22, 23 times earnings. But, but when I look deeper into them, I saw that their SG&A, that's their sales and administration costs, 
those expenses were up significantly. And the reason for that was, was because they released a couple of new drugs and they have the marketing expense and all that stuff wrapped up in there. But when I adjusted for that, well, then they started to look pretty cheap to me on an adjusted basis. When I did my math, it was they were trading about 11 or 12 times earnings with not a whole lot of debt and generating all that cash. Like I said, now, I think they've gotten past the price that I'm willing to pay for them. But if we do get a big pullback in the stock, you may be hearing me talking about them again on the show. So for right now, we're going to hold on to it. Let's move on from the druggies. Caterpillar, symbol C-A-T. Caterpillar has been mentioned on the show over the past several months, and I still think it can be bought, but I wouldn't pay much more than $130 for it. Instead of me wasting precious time on the show today, you can go back and listen to a show titled Who Let the Cat Out? And you can find it on our website, which is xmlfg.com. Once again, it's xmlfg.com or through iTunes, Google, wherever podcasts live. I've also mentioned Federal Express, symbol FDX, numerous times on the show. And this one, this one looks very inexpensive to me. And by inexpensive, I mean they're trading at 10 times this year's earnings. And over the last 15 years, the lowest average it's traded at is 13 times. So well below the average over the last 15 years. Investors are worried that Amazon or Amazon's going to start its own delivery service. And FedEx doesn't do a lot of business with Amazon in the first place. There's a lot, a lot of wrong priced in here. Too much in my opinion. I think it's a buy. And if over the coming months you see some resolution to the U.S.-China trade issues, you could see this stock move higher. I think that there are some bargains in the tech space too. Cisco being one of them, symbol CSCL. It's trading around $45, paying close to a 3% dividend. This is the telecommunications equipment maker, not the food company. They make switches and routers and all those good things that a company like AT&T and Verizon need to build out the new 5G networks. Cisco is relatively cheap. It's a really good company. Not a great company, but a really good company. That's just my opinion. I think that longer term, they can grow in the 5 or 6% range. And when I add in that decent dividend, which right now sits at about 3%, well, you have a pretty good risk-reward scenario going on there. The revenue had been on decline for the last couple of years, but that's because Cisco had been changing their business model, like a lot like Oracle has been doing. There are less of these one-time sales, meaning they used to sell hardware on a one-off basis and earn all that money up front, to now where they're focused on software-driven networking and security and data uh, data center solutions, all of which are sources of recurring revenue. They're becoming a more software-centric business. And when you change your model from one-off sales to recurring revenue, well, you're going to see some volatility in the numbers. And what you're seeing now is those revenues are starting to lurch higher. At $45, they're trading at roughly 14 to 15 times this year's estimate of $3.05 in earnings. Earnings growth over the last five years has been about 6%. 
And I'm guessing that's probably what it's going to be about going forward. What they're doing is generating a lot of cash, $13.5 billion over the last 12 months. That's a pretty high free cash flow yield. Right now, they have more than $9 a share in cash on the balance sheet. And if you pay off all the long-term debt, well, they'd still have about 5 to $5.5 of cash on the balance sheet. So if you look at it like this, about 20% of their market cap is in cash. If you want to strip out that $9 in cash and say the stock is trading at $45 and they're earning three oh five, dollars I'll do all the math here for you, then the stock is trading net of cash at about 11 to 12 times operating earnings. That's inexpensive to me. Value line gives them an A++ for balance sheet, the highest you can get, 100 for earnings predictability, which is the highest you can get, and a one for safety. That's right. You guessed it. That's the highest you can get. This is all stuff you should pay up for, but investors aren't. We're talking 11, 12 times net of cash for their operating earnings. I think this one's a buy under $44, you know. Let it come back another dollar. Buy it under 44. Apple, symbol AAPL, trading around $155. Well, Apple is really interesting, very interesting to me. Looking back over the last several years from 2010 to 2017, Apple has traded around 12 times earnings during that period. And it's only been over the last year, year and a half, that it got re-rated higher to a higher multiple, almost 18 times earnings. Now it's back down to the 12 to 13 times range. This is where I think it's inexpensive and I'd be a buyer. I think Apple's issues are fixable and I like that they continue to grow the services side of the business, which means steady recurring revenue. That's higher margin revenue also. I'm sure we'll talk more about Apple over the course of the coming year, but let's move on. Google, symbol G-O-O-G. That's another one I'd like to own, but it's got to get a bit cheaper for me too. It has to be under $1,000 for me to start looking at it. I've got time for maybe one more. Let me give you the more speculative one that I've been buying. It's booking.com, symbol B-K-N-G. With the more risky speculative type companies, well, it doesn't pay a dividend. They operate six primary brands, Booking.com, Priceline.com, Kayak, Agoda, uh, uh, Rentalcars.com, and OpenTable. People are spending more on travel and experiences, and it doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. So when people want to go somewhere, what do they do? Well, they go online. They go to Expedia or Booking.com. So they can bundle their flight and hotel and save some money. That's what the commercial tells us to do. I like the model that booking has, say, compared to Expedia, both as a customer and as an investor. The difference is, is when you go to booking, and I'm just going to stop saying .com after it from, from here on out. But when you go to booking, it's an agency model as opposed to a merchant model. What's the difference? Well, With booking, I can pay for my hotel after my visit instead of up front like you do with Expedia. And this model has allowed them to create what I call this circle of growth. It drove more people to book through them. 
And that, in turn, drove hotel inventory to the site, which drives more people to the site and so on and so on. That's why I call it the circle of growth. At the end of last year, Booking had about 400,000 traditional hotel properties compared to Expedia, which had a bit more than 440,000 hotel properties. So Expedia has more properties, but, but customers booked 673 million room nights in 2017 versus 312 million through Expedia. They book twice as many through booking.com. It also has a top 10 mobile travel app in 114 company, uh, countries, whereas Expedia was number 17 and TripAdvisor was number 20. And that was as of last month. Together, Expedia and Booking have built up this wall. Together, they have about 30% of the market and the other 70%, well, that's highly fragmented. Two things here. There's more room to grow and it's big enough now to make it really hard for someone new to enter the market and gain share. I think Expedia and Booking are going to be battling it out from here. Unless this is the sticky wicket, as they say, unless someone like Google or Amazon decides to enter the market, which they could. But I think it might be a problem for them with all the calls for regulation and a focus on privacy and folks complaining that they've just gotten too darn big. For now, I'm picking booking. I think that they've been able to build up scale in all the key markets, especially Europe and Asia. Now, they don't generate a ton of free cash flow, some, but not a ton. They've been buying back stock. They've been reducing their debt. But most of the money they make is being pumped back into the business so that they can continue to grow scale. That money that they pump back into the business is generating high rates of return, which, of course, everyone likes. The return on shareholder equity hasn't gone below 30% for the last 15 years. So let's get to the nitty gritty of it and look at valuation. Earnings have grown at about 24% a year for the last five years on average. And that's a slowdown from the 42% a year for the last 10 years. The average analyst estimate for earnings next year is just over $100 per share. And with the stock price at about $1,700 now, well, even small school children should be able to tell us that it's trading at about 17 times this year's earnings. Well, maybe not small school children, but maybe middle schoolers. It was just slightly cheaper during the financial crisis, but for the speculative minded, I think BNKG is a buy under $1,700. So we've covered quite a bit today, a number of core holdings, stocks that I think are priced to buy now, some others, if they came down a little farther and even one with a bit more risk. With all of these, you need to do your own research. Just because I like them doesn't mean a darn thing. You have to make sure that they're right for you. That's about all we have time for today. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them.
Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.